Well, as you can see from the screen, the reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 2, verses 23, through to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, and is entitled, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only to priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath to do? Good or to do evil? to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around in them, at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Uh, Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Scott, one of the ministers here. Great to be in church together. Keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, if you could. That would really help me, and I imagine help you. There's also um, space in your bulletins to take notes, if that's something that helps you kind of concentrate. I shall pray, then we shall get underway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us rest. Amen. All right, guys, you might know this one. Monday morning feels so bad. Everybody seems to nag me. Coming Tuesday, I feel better. Even my old man looks good. (laughs) Pretty low bar, isn't it? (laughs) I'd have thought. Wednesday, just don't go. Thursday goes too slow. I've got Friday on my mind. Yes, indeed, I do. And so the chorus goes, going to have fun in the city, be with my girl. She's so pretty. My girl is so pretty. Uh, she looks fine tonight. She is out of sight to me. I mean, they're deep lyrics, aren't they? Hey, Tonight I'll spend my bread. Tonight I'll lose my head. Tonight I've got to get tonight. Monday I'll have Friday on my mind. It's the first verse and chorus of uh, Friday on my mind. Song by the Easy Beats from 1967. And no, I wasn't around for it, just in case you were wondering... First song by an Australian band to ever make an international top 10 hit. It was a song voted best Australian song by the Australasian Performing Rights Association. In other words, not just three blokes in a pub. And so let's just think about this. First Australian song to ever be a hit internationally. The best Australian song ever is basically about getting through the working week so you can get to the weekend to go drinking in the city. Now, I don't know if it's the best Australian song, but it seems to me it's like the most representative Australian song, don't you think? Monday, I'll have Friday on my mind. 
as Aussies, we, we love our weekends. And we don't typically say, thank God it's Monday, which is the kind of title of our series, like at the start of the working week. We say, thank God it's Friday, when we get to Friday, when we get to the end of the working week. But our national obsession with weekends, public holidays, holidays in general, really belies the fact that we struggle to rest well. I wonder if you've detected this shift in conversation. Right, remember, if you meet someone for the very first time and they ask you, how are you? There's only one appropriate response. Fine, thanks, regardless of how you actually are. However, you meet somebody that you, you know quite well and they say, how are you? There's been a shift in the answer. We used to say, oh, I'm really busy. Now we say, man, I am so tired, don't we? And uh, the, the I'm really busy has kind of a, an optimism about it. I'm doing things, important things. You know, I'm changing the world one lunchbox at a time or whatever it is. But I'm, I'm really tired. It's just deflated. It's just a res- resigned kind of response, isn't it? I wonder if you've noticed that shift. We've got Friday on our minds, and yet the truth is the weekends don't seem to provide the rest that we so desperately crave. And that's what we're thinking about today. So far in our series on work, we've, um, we've seen that work is fundamentally good. I mean, God did it, and humans did it before sin entered the world. It's part of our design. And last week, though, we saw that work is so often frustrating. Uh, the work is relentless, it's monotonous, it's stressful. The people we work with might be untrustworthy or just incompetent, and the rewards for our work are just fleeting. And, and though work can never bring us lasting kind of meaning or purpose or a legacy, so often we burden it with those exact expectations and it becomes an idol to us, whether that's our paid vocation or our performance as parents uh, or carers or volunteers, whatever it is. So today we need to think about resting from work and we're going to think about how to rest well. And we start today by seeing that we rest in the first instance because God rested from his work. That is, within the person of God, there was this rhythm of work and then rest, work and rest. So we rest because God rested. And you'll see that in the opening account of creation, so page one of the Bible, that at the culmination of God's creative working week, he enters rest. Let's let's read it, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. See, it's interesting, isn't it, that God, who does not get tired, still entered rest. It's the rest of completion. It's the rest of enjoyment. It's the rest of peace. It's the rest of blessing, not the rest of necessity. Now, of course, we do need rest. And so when we refuse to take a day off, we're actually claiming an affinity with God that mortals cannot claim. Did you think about it that way? You know, when Israel is given the the Ten Commandments by God in Exodus... They're instructed to keep the Sabbath based on God's observation of the Sabbath here in Genesis 2. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested on the seventh day, blessing it, making it holy. And then later on in Deuteronomy, when the Israelites are given the law for a second time before they enter the promised land, there is an additional reason to keep the Sabbath rest. And that was to mark God's deliverance of them from their slave labor in Egypt. So we enter that same rhythm of work and rest as God does. And our rest, or at least the Israelites' rest, operates as a reminder of the God who delivers people from the endless drudgery and toil of slavery. See, that's quite deep, isn't it? And it's worth pondering those things. Last week, you'll remember if you were here that um, uh, Bruce told us that Aristotle, you know, the famous Greek thinker dude, he said to the ancient world, you couldn't live a truly worthwhile life and work at the same time. You remember that? Now, what we know to be true is that our culture says almost the opposite, where constant activity, constant busyness, constant economic productivity is seen as almost the highest virtue in our society. My brother and sister-in-law have a, um, a daughter with Down syndrome called Michelle. Now, I think that in itself makes them heroic because 92% of kids diagnosed with Downs in utero, in the womb, are, are, are aborted. Uh, now, I'm not judging anyone who may have experienced that. I, I'm just saying the keeping of a child with a known disability in our culture today is a heroic thing. And one of the reasons that's kind of offered up for aborting babies with Down syndrome, might not be put this crudely, is that they won't ever be productive. They won't contribute, meaning they won't contribute to the economy. They'll be a net financial drain. And so more than nine out of every ten don't ever see the light of life. Now that ought to make us weep. And uh, I'm really not trying to glamorise having a child with a disability. It's been a very difficult road for my brother and his wife, and it puts all sorts of strains upon them that, that most of us don't have to face. But you see, in her own unknowing way, Michelle is this little prophetic presence among us who shows us that human beings aren't just economic units, that we're more than just contributors to the economy, that life and humanity is more than just about what you can produce, that busyness is not the highest form of morality. And friends, let me say that rest does the exact same thing. If we can work, we ought to work, we should, but we also rest. And that is the rhythm that God has built into himself. It's a rhythm that God has built into our world. And it's a rhythm that God has built into us. So firstly, we rest because God rested. Secondly, uh, we rest from our work because it's good for us to rest from our work in other words, though God didn't need to rest because God doesn't get tired, we get tired, so it's good for us to rest. We rest because we need to, and, and gee, it seems obvious when you say it like that. It just seems like common sense, but of course we know that common sense ain't all that common. Do you know the Japanese have got a word called karoshi? And that refers to those who die from overwork. We've even got a word for it. Now, of course, Jesus articulates this basic thought in Mark chapter 2, which I hope you have open in front of you there. And by the time we reach the Gospels, there was this whole kind of strata 
of traditions that had sort of emerged around the idea of Sabbath. And so that what seemed like a pretty basic idea, or it might be good to have a day off once a week, became a legal kind of nightmare, you know, with a rigid structure surrounding, you know, what constituted work, what constituted rest. And so that keeping the Sabbath rest actually seemed like a whole lot more work than rest. And the practice of Sabbath became a genuine flashpoint for Jesus' interaction with the Jewish religious authorities. And we saw that from today's reading. So like, have a look in chapter 3, verse 6, where the Pharisees and the Herodians, who are natural enemies, get together to plot how they might kill Jesus. But go back up to chapter 2, verse 27, and you hear Jesus say these words, The Sabbath was made for man. Or the Sabbath was made for people, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath was a gift to humanity for our well-being. It wasn't meant to be another hassle to add to our list of hardships because it's good for us to rest. Why is this so difficult for us to understand? It gives our bodies a chance to catch up after the demands of a busy working week. Whatever work our week has constituted... As our work becomes increasingly about knowledge and service and innovation, rather than that kind of repetitive toil of farm or factory, it gives our minds an opportunity to recover, to decompress. You know, the rest actually helps us to work better. I was chatting to a fella after the 8 o'clock service. He said in World War II in England, they actually tried to institute a seven-day working week. And what they found is that not only on Sunday did work productivity dropped by 40%, but it dropped throughout the rest of the week as well. In other words, rest helps us to work better. But work doesn't just, or we don't just rest so that we're recharged for more work. I mean, that's the worst kind of treadmill to be on. What rest does is it it gives us kind of margin, right? A bit of space, a bit of buffer in our lives. It actually stops work from becoming all of our lives or occupying a greater significance than it ought to in our lives. The habit of rest just stops work from creeping in until it takes up not just our best energies, but all of our energy. In other words, put it this way, rest is not just about us becoming more energised and more productive. It's actually to challenge our obsession with becoming energised and productive. A weekly pattern of rest means we never go more than seven days without a chance to recalibrate our lives so that the most urgent thing is not always pushing out the most important things or at least pushing them down the agenda. And of course, and we know this, right, rest, it lifts our eyes off our desk, away from the screen, up from the workbench, uh, up from the kitchen bench, whatever it might be, up to God broadening our world by pushing us to see that we are part of a much bigger story in which God's eternal plans are caught up more than just what we need to tick off from our lengthy to-do list. So we rest because rest is good for us. Thirdly, today we rest not just from the work but actually from the work under the work. Uh, In in fact, you could almost say there is rest under the rest 
and that is resting from the work under the work. Now, I didn't come up with this, um, but essentially what I'm saying is that if we don't rest well, we will end up doing exactly what we saw last week was both meaningless and, and foolish. That is, we will make work our idol. We'll make it the thing that we devote ourselves to because we think that'll be the thing that brings us ultimate meaning. That'll be the thing that brings us ultimate satisfaction and purpose and legacy. And of course, it never can. Or, or if I put it this way, what are we actually saying when we take time off from work? One of the things we're saying is that we believe it's God who keeps the world spinning. Isn't that a healthy thing to say? It's God who keeps the world spinning, not ourselves, not our own good efforts, not our own specialised skills. Uh, it's a great act of humility, isn't it? Uh, where we recognise that though our efforts count, well, of course they do. I mean, we've been saying that all along. They're not the things that count the most. We're, we're actually saying that we trust God will provide for our family. Not necessarily, by the way, to get the promotion, to find the blockbuster product or that niche in the market or the killer stock or the new technology or the medical breakthrough or to raise the model student or the model child or grandchild, whatever it is. But it is saying that we trust God to provide what we need today, even if it's not all of what we'd really like. And so to rest is a, is a great act of humility and a great act of trust. And so we rest not only from teaching or banking or caring, but we rest from the work under the work, which is the work of relying on ourselves, the work of relying on our own efforts and our own proficiency to provide for ourselves. When we rest from the work under the work, we're also resting from people's expectations of us everyone else's expectations, many of which are unreasonable. I wonder if um, you've ever looked back on one of those times in, in your life where you work, you've been really pushed to your limit and you've just been thinking, what, why am I doing this? What is pushing me to, to go this hard this often? I mean, why am I doing this? What would happen if I stopped now? I mean, not forever, but just now because it's late tonight. What would happen? Would, would anyone die? Would nations go to war? If I went home now, if I had a day off, would a cure for cancer go undiscovered? Would my kids' talents go undiscovered? Would my client's future be severely jeopardised? Now, sometimes it will. But I think a lot of the time, if we could just step back from it and get some perspective, we would find the most grievous thing that would happen is that we would temporarily disappoint someone who we probably don't even like. Much of the time, it seems to me, the worst that can happen is we fail to live up to somebody else's expectations, uh, many of which are unreasonable. And so when we rest, we're not just recharging, ready to go back into it. We're also resting from living up to everyone else's expectations, our culture's material expectations, which says you've got to work this hard so you can have this stuff. Maybe it's our, it's our family's expectations, which says, oh, you can't do that kind of work, you've got to do this kind of work. Maybe it's just our boss's unreasonable demands. And maybe most importantly, when we rest from the work, we're actually resting from the work under the work, that is, our own insecurities and our own 
idolatry. We, we rest from working so hard to somehow gain lasting significance or purpose or to feel like we've earned our place in this world. Now, do you remember that time when um, Hollywood used to actually make films rather than just kind of rehash superhero franchises? Raise your hand if you remember that time. They were good years, weren't they? And uh, you might remember going back a fair way, this film Chariots of Fire. Uh, a wonderful film about British athletes in the 1924 Olympics. And uh, very timely for today. You might remember that kind of iconic scene of the athletes running along the west sands of um, St Andrews in Scotland. I've got a picture of it here. <laughs> Actually, that's just a Mr Bean parody. This is the real picture. You know, with the music, it's great. Uh, it tells the story of two athletes primarily. Eric Liddell, uh, a Christian man, son of Scottish missionaries in China, and Harold Abrahams, who was a, a Jewish student from Cambridge University. These two are kind of contrasted throughout the film. And Liddell, the Christian, he saw running as a way to glorify God. And his father, who was a Scottish missionary, you might not expect him to say these words, said these wonderful words. And I, I'm so tempted to do it in a Scottish accent, but what happens is it always ends being Pakistani accent. I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't matter where you start, it's where it ends. He says these words. You can praise God by peeling a spud. It lends itself to Scottish accent, doesn't it? You can praise God by peeling a spud. If you peel it to perfection, don't compromise. Compromise is a language of the devil. Run in God's name. Let the world stand back in wonder. What a great thing for a dad to say to his son. And you really sense that his son, Eric, the runner, did do that. He ran uh, without compromise, but ran out of pleasure. I mean, he said it as much himself. He said, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel that pleasure. But he ran out of freedom too. This is the wonderful thing, you see. So, so much so that when he discovered the heats of his race at the Olympics, when it's going to be on a Sunday, he decided not to run on the principle of resting on the Sabbath. In other words, what he was saying is that his work of running wasn't the be-all and the end-all. Even when His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, really insisted that he should run for the glory of the empire, he felt bold enough to refuse. You see, he could rest, not just from the work, but from the work under the work. Now, you contrast Liddell to Harold Abrahams, young, Jewish student, ambitious. He said to his girlfriend, if I can't win, I won't run. To which she very cleverly replied, if you don't run, you can't win. <laughs> Savvy girl, right? Uh, but Harold Abraham's most famous line in, in the film is when he's visualising his running lane, looking down the 100 yards, and he says, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Well, will he? Well, you've got to go watch the movie, don't you? But you see the contrast, right? Uh, Liddell runs out of freedom and he runs out of pleasure to the glory of God, so much so that he can choose to miss his event at the Olympics because he doesn't rely on his work to define himself, to try and land him ultimate meaning and an ultimate purpose. Abrahams looks at his work and says, I've just got 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. 
So I have to run. I have to do that work. Or I have no purpose. I have no significance. I have not earned my place here. You see, when we rest, we're saying to ourselves, we're saying to those around us, we're saying to God himself, I don't need to justify my existence here. I don't need to earn my place through my work. I don't find my significance in my output. I've been justified by God. I've got nothing to prove. I am deeply loved and affirmed by him, regardless of my performance at work, at home, at church, because I trust in Jesus' work of living for me and dying for me and rising for me. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew uh, 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is not because he's developed this crazy new yoga routine that will just unlock some deep rest within your soul. And he hasn't got some cheat codes to get into Settlelink's database to just unlock more money. He's saying you can come to me to find rest because I will do the work. You don't need to do the work of justifying yourself. I will do it for you. Find rest in me. That's what he's saying. So work is not our idol. And it's not how we justify our existence. And we can rest, not just from the work, but from the work under the work. When I don't look to my work to provide ultimate, ultimate meaning, I can actually just enjoy whatever pleasure it throws up, simply for the sake of the pleasure. And of course I can work wholeheartedly at it, which is good and right, but I can also leave it, because it doesn't define me or justify me or bring me ultimate significance. Only my relationship with God is going to allow me to do that. Now, as I've been thinking about this, and in our household we've been talking about it, and it certainly requires thought, we've, we'll only experience this deep rest under the rest, from the work under the work, if we practice our rest very thoughtfully. It's going to require us to be more intentional about our rest than merely counting down the days of the week until we can go drinking in the city on Friday nights, like the song said. And so to finish up today, how, how to rest well. How are we going to do that? Very tempting to be pernickety. Very tempting just to use the word pernickety because it's a great word, but very tempting to be pernickety, to prescribe a very precise approach. Now, that, of course, would be to fall into the exact same habit as the Pharisees. But I'm loath to criticise the Pharisees, to be honest with you. Wouldn't there be something ironic about us, the most overworked, stressed-out generation that ever lived laughing, belittling a group of people that took rest seriously. So I'm loath to do it, except that Jesus himself says in Mark 2, verse 27, he is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that doesn't mean that he can just kind of waltz in and override the Ten Commandments that God had given to Israel in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But it did mean that he, he did not feel subject to their pernickety rules, their rigid guidelines about the practice of Sabbath and rest. He was happy to, from the reading, like pick grain rather than starve. He was happy to, to heal a disabled man whom he found rather than just leave him be because he found him on the wrong day of the week, you know. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. It means he, he looked beyond those really rigid constructions and I think uh, what this means is that you may not have rest on a Sunday, like I don't, 
I'm at my desk before six to practice the talks. I know what you're thinking. Better get up earlier than that, Scott. <laughs> so you may not be able to get your rest on a Sunday. And uh, you may not be able to rest for a whole day, um, depending on your stage of life. If you're caring for young children or ageing parents or other family members or you're starting out in medicine or you're starting up a new business, you may not be able to do it. Although I will say, if you can take an entire like a 24-hour block of time off from working and bustle and unthinking activity, your life will dramatically improve. I think that's true. Some people have asked about Sunday trading. Like, what do we think about Sunday trading as Christians? Are we for it or against it? Uh, I think this whole thing means we can't say automatically that it's evil. But boy, I will say, Sunday trading, kids' sport on Sundays, all the, the school stuff that happens on Sundays... I'm like, you guys have Monday to Friday. Why do we need to do it on Sundays? It does make it that much harder for us to experience proper rest because now we've got to very deliberately and determinedly resist the structures of our society to really rest well. So I'm going to ask all of us to review our personal and family schedules just to see if we have unthinkingly gone with the flow of culture that says every day is just the same. Every slot is filled with activity. Every available hour is consumed with being productive and there is no time to rest. You've got to look at your schedules, people. To the families, I will say, your kids don't need to do everything. They actually don't. They don't need to play in three teams. They don't need to play three instruments. They don't need to be in every kind of um, cultural opportunity that's offered via schools or other places. They don't have to go to every party. Just because you get an invitation or an opportunity doesn't mean that you should say yes, even though they are good things to do. If you're going to rest well, you might need to choose what is better over what is merely good. So review your schedules and get some guts about you. Now, uh, here are four practical ideas of things to do that I borrowed from someone else that are helpful. How to rest well. Firstly, do something avocational. Got nothing to do with avocados, right? Avocational. That is, do something that's not connected with your ordinary employment when you're resting. Okay, if you're a gardener and we've got some landscape gardeners in our congregation, you don't want to do gardening on your day off. If you're an ad- in administration, don't send emails on your day off. Like, here's a radical thought just turn email off. Do you know what the E stands for in email? It stands for evil, right? Because they just keep coming in. (laughs) Unplug for a day. That would change your life. Secondly, uh, do something relational. Um, The Sabbath or the Old Testament religious festivals were community affairs. So even the introverts among us, and I'm certainly one of them, we want to involve people in our rest. Uh, Thirdly, do something worshipful. Because rest isn't just about sleeping in, uh, catching up with buddies over brunch and having a hit of tennis, although those things are all good. When, when God first gave the Sabbath instructions to the Israelites, they were to celebrate it unto the Lord. And, and so rest, of course, it should involve gathering for a worship service. I, I have to say, as a church, we don't do this well. Um, I'm loath to kind of criticise us because I just want to encourage, but this is an area we're not good at. We fit our leisure, we fit our worship, I should say, around our leisure. And that means instead of being at church 
every week we're at church every other week or every third week or every fourth week. Now tell me, do you think it's honouring to God if you're a Christian and you say, God, I'll just fit worship of you around all the other more important things I've got to do? Now, folks, we can do better than that, and I think as Christians we ought to. You know, um, it's not just a have-to thing, right? You think about leisure. Some people have said the highest conceivable form of leisure is found in the worship of God. Don't you think that's true? it's It's found in the celebration of the Creator, not just the enjoyment of His creation. The focal point of Israel's Sabbath was the collective worship of God coming together. And you know what happens then? Worship actually retrains our thoughts to His thoughts. It lifts our vision to see His great vision for our lives. So do something worshipful. And fourthly, do something enjoyable, which most of us can work out for ourselves quite easily. Now, you look at those four things, and it doesn't take very long before you realise that if we're going to do those four things, that is to make the most of rest, to take a Sabbath or any chunk of time off, you've got to plan ahead. Interesting, isn't it? In order to rest, it requires a bit of work. If you're in a significant caring capacity, and that's a lot of us here, not just those of us with young children, but those of us with frail parents, for example, and others, that might mean we've got to work out how to get chores done ahead of time. It might mean we've got to get other family members involved. A good chance here for uh, those who aren't staying at home looking after the kids to actually get involved with some of those chores over the weekend when you have a chance to, to help the young mums or the young dads have rest. You've got to get other people involved. Remember the Israelites when uh, they were given the Sabbath instructions in Exodus and they were in the wilderness and God provided manna from heaven... What did he say the day before Sabbath? He said, oh, you're going to need to collect twice as much, aren't you? So you can rest the next day. Requires a bit of forward planning, a bit of thoughtfulness. And so every one of us is going to need to think carefully about how this will play out in our particular situation. But let me say, I can guarantee you, resting well is not going to happen coincidentally. We just get carried away with the structure and the flow of our world. And equally, I can say, you will not regret you will not regret thoughtful rest. So think about it. As we finish up, um, really is telling that the, uh, the greatest Australian song ever, the first Australian song to hit the big time was about getting through the working week to get to the weekend. Telling really because as a nation we love leisure and yet we rarely rest well. But as thoughtful Christians, this is something we can do. We can rest, we can stop, and we can acknowledge God's provision, and we can gently push aside others' unreasonable expectations and our own insecurities and idolatry, and we can look to Jesus' work, and we can see our prospects ultimately tied up in what he has done for us, not what we must do for ourselves. And I think, friends, that will help us to rest better and work better and lift our vision and feel his pleasure and bring him glory. And I'm going to pray that we do that just now. Why don't you close your eyes and pray with me? I'm going to lead us in a prayer that comes from a great little book I was reading this week. Then after that, 
I want to pray for all those who are industrialists or employers, that is, people involved in business, banking, finance, big business, small business, whatever it is, self-employed. I want to pray for you and your work. But let me pray for us all first. Dear Lord, we are and will never this side of the resurrection be more than creatures of dust. Let us rest content in our creaturely weakness and let us use the means that you have given us to keep going in this life while we can. Allow us time to sleep. Help us to trust you enough to take a day off. Move us to invest in friendships rather than being proud loners. Help us to take with gladness the inner refreshment you offer us. We want to serve the Lord Jesus with a glad and restful zeal, with all the energy that he works within us, but not with anxious toil, selfish ambition, the desire for the praise of people, or any other ugly motivation that will destroy our souls. So help us, God, we pray. And now if you are involved in business, you're involved in banking, finance, industry, big business, small business, you're self-employed, why don't you stand? I'd love to pray for your work. Lord, we do thank you for your own industriousness. Thank you for your great work, and I recognise the work of my brothers and sisters here who are involved in business, in industry, in uh, financial sectors and markets, who employ other people, uh, who provide goods and services on account of their work and their business, and I pray that you would be with them. Help them to sink into areas of work that promotes flourishing in our world. Protect them from the folly uh, and the evil that comes along with dishonesty and greed. Help them to apply themselves to their work so that they work well, that the goods and services they produce are indeed good, that the people that work with them, above them, for them, are blessed by their presence in their workplaces, that ultimately you might be honoured because of where they spend their days and to what they apply the work of their hands. So bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Bruce now, who's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper.